This is the Design Goggles podcast on BNV Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the old Ballard neighborhood and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled Local Color. Seattle's nickname is the Emerald City, and no matter the time of year, green is everywhere. There's Puget Sound as well, which is blue, of course, unless it's sunset, then it's gold for a few hours. Unless, of course, it's wintertime, in which case everything is gray, except for the trees, they're still green, and that's just the beginning. You might have noticed we have more than a few buildings as well in our urban center, and they all have colors as well, some successfully vibrant and some less so. Seattle's relationship with color is complicated, and beyond the color gray, it's surprisingly not something we talk about too much. How important is color to a city that is quite literally gray for half the year? How do the colors that surround us affect our lives, our state of mind, and our quality of life in the Pacific Northwest? Is color just as important as the other life-sustaining resources, just food and shelter and air? To help us that question and more, we are joined by Sierra Shaver of Borden Vellum and owner of My Own Pantone, an Instagram feed focused solely on the colors of our world. Sierra, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. So, how long have you been in Seattle? I've been here just over three years. We moved here July 5th, uh, 2015. So, yeah, just over three That's years. That's a good amount of time. I feel like in another city you'd be considered <laughs> a real urbanite. I think it's going to take more time. I think they say, what, half your, if you spent more than half your life in Seattle, you're a Seattleite? That depends who you ask. Ah, okay. Well, but July 5th is a perfect day to move to Seattle, right? It's the first day that it isn't going to be raining. It's the first day of summer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what neighborhoods have you lived in since you've been here? When we first moved here, we lived in Fremont for a year, and then we found a cool place in Queen Anne, and we've been in Queen Anne since then. What's it been like living in Queen Anne? It's been really fun. It's a it's a great neighborhood. Uh, lots of great restaurants. It's a it's really beautiful. We spend a lot of time outside walking, and it's definitely a fun neighborhood to just walk and see and people watch. I heard you had some doormat challenges Oy. living in Queen Anne. We lived in a very stringent condominium with a lot of uh, rules. One of them included not having a doormat, which we learned the hard way. What what was learning the hard way? We got a really passive aggressive letter in the mail, which we learned is also a Seattle thing. Um, We got a a letter in the mail saying that our doormat conflicted with the architectural integrity of the hallway. A a letter from your neighbor. From the HOA. Could have, right, just talked to you. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. That's awesome. I mean, you have to learn somehow. That's true. I mean, how how else are you going to learn? I don't know. But uh, you are not from Seattle. No, I grew up in Boise, Idaho. Short 10-hour drive from Seattle. And my mom grew up on Bainbridge Island. And so we, as kids, grew up coming to Seattle all the time. Once a year, maybe twice a year. And it was the first city that I ever visited as a kid. 
which is super magical as someone that's into design and art and and urban things. And so I really vividly remember visiting as a kid and just being blown away by the city and everything that's going on and the art and the mountains and the ocean. And it was really impressive as a kid to come here. Was there one thing, one moment that stuck? You know, this is going to sound crazy. I remember as a kid smelling the sea air, which is so different Mm -hmm. because you don't we don't have salt water in Idaho. And I remember that being such a unique experience. I would stick my head out the window when we were driving downtown and it just was so cool that the air smelled different. I can so relate to that. That's something still on a day to day basis that blows me away. Having lived in a bunch of cities now, spending most of my adult life in cities, the air here is phenomenal. Yeah, like it's crazy. When I get off planes, uh-huh. the first thing I'm just like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. <laughs> but uh, so probably a little different than than Boise. What's been what's been some of the challenges in adjusting to living in Seattle? I think doormats aside, doormats aside, I think, you know, it really hasn't been a huge adjustment. Our lifestyle certainly haven't 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 changed. I grew up being an outside kid and doing everything outside, hiking and camping and skiing. Those are things that I still get to do up here, which is really, really great. I haven't lost out on any of that. I think just, you know, the expenses of living in a city, the action, there's always something going on, which can be good and bad. Sometimes you just need some solace and some quiet, and that isn't always granted to you in a city. But I think it hasn't been a huge adjustment just being here and watching a city grow as quickly as Seattle is growing is really unique, but it enables the same lifestyle that I grew up with, which is really exciting. You know, I heard, not heard, I guess I read certain people think of Boise as the Pacific Northwest. Is it technically in the Pacific Northwest? I would. Uh-huh. It's incredibly, it's in a valley with a river running through it. So it's very green. We have foothills all around. Everyone is obsessed with being outside. Mm-hmm. Everyone is very sustainably minded. Mm-hmm. I think that the thing that really connects it to the Pacific Northwest is just the outdoorsiness. We have some of the greatest rivers, whitewater rafting in Idaho. It's really beautiful. We have the sawtooths, which are like the Alps of Idaho, we always say. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really fun place to be. There's a lot to do. It's kind of small, but it there's just so much to do. So cool. I got to go. Ever since moving out here, I feel like I've discovered all these new places and I do, I can't get to them all. How do you and I was thinking, I know. Well, also, I was thinking when I first moved out here, I was like, oh, I'll have this easy access to Alaska and Japan. And But then, like, since I got here, I've just been more interested in the United States. Yeah. I've just been like, screw the Pacific. I want to go to Bozeman and and, <laughs> yeah. and Boise, and I never would have thought that would that would be the the way I was uh-huh. I was I was looking. So you've been here for three years, but you had a, a childhood trip. What's it been like watching the city change since you have been here? Even just three years has actually been kind of a crazy evolution. It is fascinating. We recently just moved into a new apartment and we were reflecting on when we were still living in Boise, looking for an apartment in Seattle. Mm -hmm. It was easier to find an apartment while being in Boise than it was for us two months ago living in Seattle, trying to find an apartment because it's growing so much. There's not a lot of affordable places to live, even for young professionals, which is scary and crazy and interesting because 
because it's just going through growing pains. Seattle is just growing. And there are certain markets and certain things that are adjusting because of that growth. So, but it's been really interesting to watch the city grow. And especially knowing this, knowing the city pretty well as a kid, being able to compare it, the skyline is completely different. Mm-hmm. We, we came to Seattle in grad school for a field trip. And South Lake Union was all parking lots. And that was, you know, six years ago, six or seven years ago. And they had the big master plan and a a cool model of it. And everything on that model was going to be brand new skyscrapers. And it's just crazy to see them happening. It's weird that part of the city, and I I don't even know if I have the authority to say this, doesn't feel like Seattle. I feel like I could be anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily featureless because that's not true right but it's almost anonymous but that's kind of what makes it so interesting every little neighborhood is just a micro community that's this big quilt that's this that's seattle and fremont is so different than you know ballard and they're adjacent Mm -hmm. and green lake is so different from ravenna and that's what i think is so unique about it they're all these self-sustaining communities Mm -hmm that are so unique and so different. Is there a neighborhood you identify with the most? I am active in the arts community here, which has a lot of activity in Capitol Hill. So I spend a lot of time here, but I like the quietness of Queen Anne and I like the old buildings, but there are old buildings everywhere. And I think there's still a lot of Seattle that I haven't explored, which is cool. I think that's one of the things that we've discussed before on this show too, that It seems like there are some people that think of it as a negative thing that there are some neighborhoods in Seattle that maybe don't feel like Seattle anymore. I'm I'm using air quotes here for you (laughs) radio listeners. (laughs) Anyway, what I'm getting at is that when people say that it doesn't feel like Seattle anymore, what I think they are getting at is that it doesn't feel like the neighborhood they grew up in anymore. But that's one of the best things about Seattle, I think, is that we do, exactly like you said, have these you know, collection, this sort of ecosystem of neighborhoods that have all their own cultures. And we need a South Lake Union one amongst the group of all of the others, right? Because sometimes you feel like that having that vibe. Sometimes you feel like going to Fremont. Sometimes you feel like Ballard. I love that you can make your choices and go to the neighborhood that feels like how you want to spend your day mm-hmm. and live in the one that feels like where you want to live and work in one that feels like where you want to work. So one of the interesting things about the way you experience the city is through color. And so I was a late Instagram adopter. I held out forever because I'm a mean old man. And I eventually like broke and like joined. And Welcome. thank you. Um, <laughs> but so I found your Instagram account because I had added you. and. I saw your My Own Pantone Instagram account, which at a quick glance just looks like color matching. You see a beautiful thing. You enjoy the color. You carry with you a little swatch of colors and you match it up. But one of the most interesting effects it had on me was I started to, as I experienced Seattle, notice color much, much more and be much more thoughtful about the color I was experiencing. And every single one of your posts made me experience the city different, which I thought was really fantastic. And I'm so I'm so curious as to what drove you to start it and how it's changed your experience of the city. Well, thank you. My Pantone project started when I was living in Italy 
and I saw, I think it was on Pinterest, somebody had matched a Pantone paint sample to a, a bunch of wildflowers. And I thought that was really cool. And so I thought, what if I went to Home Depot and I took one of each Pantone paint samples? This was when Pantone was still making paint. Mm -hmm. So they had their paint swatches that you could take and they were like three inches by three inches and there were a hundred of them. So I took one of each. I had my 100 Pantone colors and I took them to Italy and I thought, I want to find every one of these colors and match them to something in Italy. And I wonder what it's going to be and I wonder what I'm going to find. And so the summer that I was in Italy, I always had my stack of Pantones and I was always looking for things that I could find. And it totally changed how I was experiencing travel in Italy because I would be I would be looking for, OK, I need to find a powder blue. And then all of a sudden I'm looking for powder blue and I can't find it. And then as soon as you find it, you it's something that you would never notice. It wound up being a chalkboard menu at a, at a cool little cafe. And then at the end of this trip, I had 100 photos of these colors that I had matched in real life. And it was just this really cool thing that I had for myself, a little passion project. And then I thought, what if I did this instead of traveling? I should just do this at home mm -hmm. and I should do this and see what I find in my day to day life. And since then, Pantone stopped making paint samples, making paint. And so my paint sample idea was gone. And then my friend gifted me a set of Pantone swatches and they're about 300 colors. And I thought, this is my new project. This is just elevated. And now, now I have all these new colors to find in my life. And instead of having a time cap on it, I decided to just find what I find and see, see what I find in a year. My Pantone calendar year. This started in April. An important side question for uh -huh. you, but I feel like I'm burning to ask you this question. When you were collecting 100 paint samples from Home Depot, was there like a guy in an orange apron that was like, can I help you? Miss? Oh, yeah. And I was like, no. <laughs> I'm clearly exactly where I need to be. And I'm like, no, I'm helping myself. Yeah. Fine. These are free. I am not doing anything illegal. That's really funny. And actually... More side story, my relationship with paint samples. As a kid, I would beg my parents to drive me to Home Depot and I would take hundreds <laughs> of paint samples. I would take them home and cut them up and hot glue them together and make my dream house. And so like the paint sample business is an old business for me. <laughs> it was no big deal doing it as an adult as I did it as a kid. Um, anyways, but... It was a bummer to not have the paint samples because they were free. And so the, the swatches weren't free, but my friend gave them to me because she had acquired them. And so now I get to do this really cool project and I have my Pantones with me every day when the lighting is right or when when I just pass by something that's really cool. I try and match it up the best that I can. And I'm also keeping a little journal of the story behind finding each color. So it's kind of even morphed even more. So if something really cool happens that day, I think I have to find a Pantone today so I can write about what happened today. So when my boyfriend proposed to me, I thought, I've got to find a Pantone today. <laughs> um, so it's always a project that's growing and I I didn't I didn't start my Instagram account until very recently because I I didn't want it to affect 
the integrity of the project. And I, it's really just a cool thing that I do. And I hope that my Instagram account can inspire people to find color and to look for color or to just change the way they commute, change what they look at and change what they see. It certainly changed what I see and what I find. Mm -hmm. I just use it as a way to sort of map my life a little bit and to discover new things. And it's just a really fun way to always be making and always be searching. It's challenging and fun. And luckily, my most of my friends are aware of it. So they know that, okay, I found something cool. You guys can go ahead and I'll, I'll meet up with you. I'm going to pantone this thing really quick. Well, you moved to a city that has an interesting relationship with color. As an antithesis, a city like Miami is known for having all sorts of pops of vibrant pastel colors and neon signs and Seattle gray for more than half the year. And what that does to color essentially is desaturates everything for more than half the year. And so it seems like people, I'm going to make a gross generalization here, pay attention to color less during those months because- Shots fired. I know. Because everything is so desaturated. The reason why I say it seems that way is because it seems like architecturally, at least, Seattle's color choices are interesting, to say the least. And people gravitate towards gray buildings, especially architects and designers. And some of the admittedly some of my favorite buildings going up right now are gray and black or desaturated wood tones at the best. It seems like designers are afraid to use color. Rachel's dying right now. Like Like she's bobbing up and down. Rachel, say whatever it is you need to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's because I think it's exactly the opposite of what you're saying about the color being desaturated when it's gray, when the weather is gray. I, I think that it's we're afraid of color because if think about it on the grayest day when everything feels like it's desaturated, but then you see like a construction cone. It is so bright. It's almost like those neon colors are brighter than they would be in Miami. Like you wouldn't even notice this construction cone in Miami or whatever, because everything is so colorful. But here, because the sky is gray, and I think it's something about the flat light and the way that we need to get our last, uh, one of our previous guests, CJ Brockway, back in here to talk about this. I'm wondering if the flat light and the kind of not direct sun create some sort of scenario with how the light interacts with surfaces and, and so that the neon color, a lot of these neon colors are much more vibrant in the kind of dim flat light that we have here a lot of time than they would be in a high contrast direct sun situation. Totally. I love finding colors in Seattle because of the overcast light. All of the colors that you see are the most pure that you'll ever see. The way colors work is it's just light bouncing off of a surface. And depending on what sort of light is being cast onto the color is what's reflected back at you and what your brain filters. And so a red paint swatch, a red Pantone swatch in Miami with the sun being shown on it is dealing with glare and it's dealing with reflection and it's filtering all of this stuff from the sun. It's a totally different color. It's not a worse color or a better color. It's just a completely different color. So in Seattle, where the lighting is basically like a like a lighting studio because it's perfect. The lighting that we have naturally here provides a perfect place to photograph color. And I love looking for Pantone things in Seattle because it's basically like a natural lighting studio. The colors are totally real 
And since it's so flat, whatever I'm photographing, if it's a flower, which has reflective qualities and it might be shiny or kind of like leathery. If I'm photographing a flower and then I'm holding a paint swatch in front of it, which is matte and flat, it looks the exact same because no sun is bouncing off of it and it's not creating any shadow. And I, that's why I love photographing in Seattle because it is the most pure form of seeing color. And it might appear more vibrant and maybe that's because we're just a, our, we're attuned to the overcast sunlight because in reality the cone isn't brighter yeah but it just seems it like seems it seems brighter and then i think that this communicates into fashion too i mean it's less and less as seattle grows we're getting a lot more cosmopolitan with our fashion and stuff but like back when i was a kid you didn't wear like super bright clothes you just didn't see people walking down the street in like a you know head to toe bright color it was right. shades of beige and plaid and flannel and stuff <laughs> You know, socks and sandals and things, but but muted. Next socks. week's show will be socks and sandals <laughs> with Rachel. Right? <laughs> That's right. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. She's learned her lesson. But anyway, <laughs> I think that because the there's so much contrast, right? I think people and and probably people building buildings and painting walls and stuff. It's like there's a skittishness that happens because you see it so much. I don't know, like maybe we could like cross a, a threshold into having more color in our architecture, but whoever starts going there first, it's going to stand out so much that it's, it's a bold move to do that. Why is that? Uh, that's what I'm curious about. So you said something really interesting before that we're, we as in designers, we are afraid of color. Oh no. Or do you Did think it's that? Seattleites are afraid of Seattleites color? Seattleites are afraid of color. Why? I'm so not afraid of that? color, but there's is? a... And, and I, maybe that's unfair to say that Seattleites are afraid of color. I think it's more that we aren't already a culture of color everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so to to all of a sudden be the brightest thing in the room is kind of inherently not Pacific Northwesty. Do you think it's a reminder of summer? Because in summer here, everything is colorful and bright and vibrant and beautiful. But certainly the Seattleites seem to have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. Right. <laughs> I think... Using color is a it's a bold statement and it's a big commitment. And when you're designing a building, I think a lot of designers are thinking of a 50 year, 50 plus year timeline for this building lifespan. And they're thinking, I don't want to have a bright orange building if it's not going to be really, really chic in a century. And I think that that is a scary thing. And instead of embracing that and thinking, well, let's make orange the chicest thing for the next century. I think that a lot of designers stay safe and say, well, gray, gray is gray. It's neutral. It's not super bold. It's not a super big commitment. It won't look incredible. It won't look bad. Let's go with it. <laughs> <laughs> what could go wrong? So it's a fear of criticism? Like architectural wallflowers. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I wish architects would think in a 50-year lifespan. There's a couple buildings specifically on Capitol Hill that are a color that was a very specific color of a time when the buildings were built. It, they stand out in that way. There's a very specific purple that was like super, super in, but for like 24 months. And, and that's the fear. Yeah, that's the fear, right? Well, so on the other side, of can't really speak for other cities, but we, we do make a big effort to be building with a lot of 
you know, beautiful natural materials. It's very Pacific Northwesty to say that, no, we're not using artificial things. These are all natural and sustainably mm -hmm. sourced and all of this stuff, right? And so you, most of the time, those natural materials are not, they're not these vibrant colors. It's a more natural color palette, which very much feels Pacific Northwesty again the air quotes to blend in here you know blending in yeah merging the urban and the not necessarily rural I was about to say rural but it's not so much blending rural as we think of as small towns but blending the natural environment and the urban environment into one I think there's maybe even less of an opportunity just because we like to use these natural things we're not just painting stuff colors or using products that come in vibrant colors necessarily as much as you might in a city yeah. that that was the the governing aesthetic, right? Well, you can make an argument that hardy panel is a majority of the building materials that are being used for better or for okay. worse on right. a on yeah. a quantity okay. on a quantity scale. But in small that but yeah. so that's for small, usually smaller you know, smaller buildings and things, right? That are having that, which are paintable, which again creates this argument of like, well, why does it matter if you can paint it? It's not you don't need to think about a fifty year time span for whether your color is going to be trendy if you're going to paint it whenever you want. The Space Needle is a great example because the top of it was bright orange originally. And and it, and it looks wildly different, mm -hmm. but it's really cool. That was the original plan. They had a whole color scheme for the Space Needle and it was all space themed, which is so cool and so mid-century. The legs were astronaut white and the core was orbital olive. Oh, that's so cool. The halo was re-entry red and the roof was galaxy gold. I think that that speaks, of course, to the time that the Space Needle was built. It was very future themed and the Space Needle was sort of a marketing thing to get people to come to the city and your future is here and I see the future in Seattle and look at all these space themed things we have. It got painted over. I'm not sure when it was painted. They painted it white. But what a cool thing that the conscious decision of the designer to have these colors and I wish I knew the story about why they painted over it, but I do love that they painted it for, I think, I think for five months or something. Yeah, I can't remember exactly when that was, but it was tied to a momentous memorial date or something like that. Because my entire childhood, the it was always all white all the time, the uh -huh. Space Needle. And when they painted it orange, I was like, what are you doing? And then I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's a completely it. yeah. different structure. It totally changes how it sits in the skyline. And it's kind of like when you think about you know, old ruins in ancient Greece, right? Yeah. They, we all think of them as oh, these they were stark all white things now, colored. but they were complete. Well, you say yeah. garish, right? right? But I mean, Comparatively to them, to what we, it was yeah. not garish. It was, we think of this classical sculpture as being just solid white and, and, and it wasn't at I all. I wonder if that's where the association with white and neutral colors and sophistication came from, is that all of the ancient architectural masterpieces had aged to be white or neutral. And then that became the classical color scheme of neutrality. I always wondered about that. Like, why do people think of vibrant, multicolored things as somehow less sophisticated? In painting, you start with a white paint. Mm -hmm. And the more colors, the more pigments you add to it, the more brown it gets and the less light it reflects. And I think that sort of subconsciously, that's that can be ingrained. The more colors you add, the less interesting it is, and the more brown, the more black it gets. I think that it also depends on the, in the on the types of pigments that you're using, right? Yeah. And also, if we're talking 
um, like staining pigments or translucent pigments and things like that. And maybe also the skill of the artist of whether they're accidentally making it muddy and dark and gross or whatever, or if they're able to get light reflecting. Mm -hmm. And then something to think about uh, in terms of the cost of pigments, mm -hmm. right? Back in the day, certain... And by back in the day, I mean like thousands of years ago and more, <laughs> right? There are huge monetary and financial implications that are associated with certain pigments over others mm -hmm. and, and ownership of who, not only who could afford to have those pigments, but who was allowed to be using mm -hmm. these pigments for mm -hmm. different things. There's so much political and cultural and socioeconomic stuff related to color and how we think of it as, as in terms of, you know, taste over thousands of years. Yeah, it's true. And a lot of really ancient paintings are really brown because that was a financially reasonable pigment because mm -hmm. brown, you can get it from the earth, you can get it right. from clay and then turn it into a pigment and, and colors like blue where there aren't a lot of natural blue things in nature that you can turn into pigment until until blue could be until pigments could be artificially created blue was a very expensive pigment and so in a lot of old paintings characters that are painted in blue are really really important because they are the characters that are worthy of that color the virgin mary is almost always painted in blue or other religious figures so everything in Seattle should be painted blue. That's the end of the show. Good night, everybody. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the color blue, so I would be totally fine with that. But <laughs> of course, the most expensive pigment. Of course, sure. I didn't know that, but that's fascinating. Yeah, lapis lazuli. That's the pigment that we're mostly talking about here when we're talking about these historic paintings and things. Cost of it by, by weight in, in terms of what the cost of gold was. It was a hugely valuable pigment. Just astronomically, like we don't think of it now. We're like, oh, what? Can, how much paint can we get, like per five gallon bucket? It was not like that. Specializing in interiors, people are much more liberal with what they'll accept. When you color, you can color a room any color, any saturation. Everybody's like, oh, that's very interesting, and they're very open to it and accepting of that. But when a building, there was a building just completed recently that's extremely colorful here in Seattle, and everyone is up in arms about it for one reason or another. And it's occurring to me how differently we treat design and architecture on the exterior versus the interior. Maybe because the interior is so intimate, it's for you, it's it's your space or it's your tenant's space. And the exterior is for literally everyone. And in order to satisfy everyone, some people are gonna hate orange. Right. And some people are gonna hate blue. I think that there's a big sense of democracy in choosing neutral colors for better or for worse. But then the world turns into a big cubicle farm. Exactly. Like a beige cubicle farm. Well, you're yeah. thinking about the context of your neighbors too, right? Are you going to be the first house on the block that, let's just say, paints your house bright green and watercolor themed? Mm -hmm. Right. Which actually yep, happened down the street. <laughs> I, don't, I actually don't think it was maybe it was not the first one. I think no. that, yeah, that was a different lot, scenario. It's that. bold, but yeah. it's it's bold. And, and if you can back it up yeah. and be like, yeah, this looks great. Yeah. We're referring to a, a house that was built down the street, actually, from where we're recording right now. That was painted extremely vibrant. It was green and purple trim. And it was really, really controversial in our neighborhood. It's funny. You, whether you like color or not, you can't say that that's like it's a sad. Like it's so happy. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Every time you go by that house, those houses or any building that is vibrant, 
you might love it, you might hate it, but it's never like a sad, depressing experience. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, especially since architecture ages, and you could argue the more successful the work of architecture, the more it will have the opportunity to age. There's nothing sadder than like a dying, lonely, colorless building. Even the colorful ones that age still retain character and life. You could also argue that there's nothing sadder than architecture that isn't able to age gracefully and be renewed. So that you, if you if you build a building that cannot, that somebody can't come in and be like, right now the hot color is whatever it is. I'm going to adopt into this building and I'll let this building shine on trend for this five-year period of time sure. and then we're going to change it to this other thing. But at least it tells a story that that building was loved and thought about yes. once. But if you can create an like ongoing love for buildings, buildings last long enough that you need to endear them to people of multiple generations, right? Either you do that by somehow being timeless in a way that everybody is relatable with or you do it by being adaptable so that each new generation coming in can really feel like this is also theirs, even though it's been there for however many decades or centuries. And I think good design does that. It's quintessential and it's applicable in any scenario, any time frame, any kind of weather and places like the EMP, which is an incredibly colorful building and is a modern building, quote unquote, because it doesn't fit in with a lot of the historical stone detailed buildings that we have in Seattle. But also at one point, the Space Needle was a modern building. And how cool is that, that both of those really bold structures are both reflections of whatever was happening during the time that they were built. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be interesting to come to in 50 years, take another look at the, the EMP. Weirdest. The weirdest vision just now of EMP, which is this very, very bright, colorful Gary, Frank Gehry building here in Seattle, being painted white <laughs> for generations. And then one day, why did they paint all those crazy colors? And then people having a conversation, no, those are the original colors and having their mind blown. Yeah. I was actually wondering that because the Space Needle is inherently very paintable. Uh-huh. Paint it, whatever we could. Titanium, we could do like not so ombre, much. the yeah. whole thing. We could do what, you know, whatever we wanted, we could do, Right. I don't know. What are the, so, cause the EMP right now has, even some of those panels are even iridescent. It's probably painted. With enough money, you can anodize you can anything, paint anything metal. <laughs> Technically. I mean, it would cost a fortune, but I mean, building probably costs a fortune to begin with. That's a building I love on Monday, hate on Tuesday, love on Wednesday, hate on Thursday. I can't make up my mind about it ever, but it's never boring. Interesting correlations that Color just seems to be more emotion, positively emotional in general. Well, and I think a unique thing about color is there's no way to objectively experience color. You're going to see it differently than I'm going to see it. And you're going to like different things than I'm going to like. And I think that's what's so cool about it. It's a very intimate experience that can't be replicated and it can't be prepared and I think what's unique about Seattle, what we were talking about with the lighting, is I think that is such a neutral way of creating this color canvas. And that color of red is going to be the most neutral color of red because there's no sun shining on it and there are no shadows. You know, that's such a unique thing about color it's, is it's so subjective. But it's really, really easy to argue about perception of color. I feel like I've had constant arguments about, no, I'm pretty sure that this is a purple gray. And the other person would be like, no, it's a gray purple. 
you know, it's it's blue green or it's green blue or whatever. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And now with my when I match my Pantones, I've done it so much that I sort of have an internal checklist and I think, OK, is, are there shadows? Is the sun to my back? If I tilt it this way, if I tilt it towards me, does it change? If I tilt it away from me, does it change? And I'll have people that are walking with me or something and they will always suggest and they'll say, are you sure it's not that color? And I always say, nope, it's definitely a red brown. It's not a blue brown. And it's just because I've done it so much that my brain is trained to look for those things. Mm -hmm. But it's so interesting to see them figure that out, too. And then I'll hold up the red brown and I go, see how it's different? And they go, oh, you're right. It's totally, totally different. And that other color is the right color. And Part of that probably is because you're always associating color with other things that you've seen. A bright orange traffic cone, then you assume that the the plastic orange mesh in front of a construction zone might be the same. And then you hold them next to each other and it's totally different. And I think that our brains are always trying to keep things simple for us. So it associates those different colors and just says it's all bright orange. It's all the same bright orange. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at it critically, they're totally different oranges. Yeah. I find this fascinating because if you think about your neural inputs, right? So all we are constantly bombarded with astronomical amount of information. And the only way that we are not entirely insane all the time is that our brains censor us, censor everything for us, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's we all we are all very much aware of the fact that that is happening. Like we're not noticing that we have the watch on our wrist, right? Because mm -hmm. we notice it when we put it on, and then everybody was like, "Okay, don't worry about it. It's not a spider," uh, which is like my brain's big concern. <laughs> but <laughs> just like right between the lines here, right? It's not a spider. It's your watch. It's fine. And then it stops signaling to you that it's there, and you forget that it's there. But then if it fell off, that would be a change in the input, and uh -huh. your brain would signal you. And I think that we're maybe because of it being talked about more in in pop culture and stuff we're aware of that mm -hmm. more i think generally as a public but we're less aware of the fact that our brains are doing that with our visual input too and with color mm -hmm. we don't think about it as much because we're not like oh the traffic cone is a spider <laughs> versus the construction sign so we're not bothering to take a step back and and unfilter what our brain is filtering for us and think about the differences in those colors right because it's just not what you're psyche is trained to do it's not a life and death situation so you don't need to but as soon as you as soon as you start trying to notice those differences you will just find so much you'll find so much color everywhere and it's so fascinating almost out of time but i want to bring this up anyway because my own pantone is on instagram and there are a lot of articles being written now about because of instagram and the ability to quickly edit and alter photos that people are much more able to visually pick out inauthenticity in photographs than they ever have been before. And it occurs to me that our idea of how the world looks is altered by the images we're seeing. Your, you know, everything on your feed is you're matching colors, so you're probably not touching that much. But it seems like every other photograph that's being taken, our experiences in many remote places, are all being filtered through a screen, which is super powerful. Do you think that has an effect on how people think about color and how people make associations to color? Yeah. 
On my on my, the Pantone photos that I take, I don't Photoshop anything. So I want to make the colors as authentic as they can be from my naked eye through my phone onto the internet. But I do think that the photos that people take and then they apply a filter, you know, Instagram has what, 20 filter options. And it's so subjective again on, do you want it to look antique or do you want it to look kind of blue? It is really interesting because I think now everyone's a photographer and it makes things like that accessible to everyone, which is great. And it allows us all to connect and share ideas. But I do think that filters on filters on filters, I don't love it. But I think, you know, there's also sort of a theme with a, a lot of nostalgia. Everyone wants to go back to the 90s. And I think things like filters on Instagram can take us back there. Hmm. And I don't know if that's good or that's bad. And I don't know what that means for the future. Maybe there will be like a future filter that we can put on our Instagram posts. That you is know, the future. This yeah. is this is a thing that I've been really fascinated with watching over the years because I'm obsessed with Instagram too and digital in my my phone is like my best friend with its camera and everything. But before all that, you know, I've spent many years with my own darkroom and, and developing film and, and using, you know, old vintage cameras or or brand new cameras that were really cheap, like a Holga or something like that. So it was really fascinating to me to when Instagram and this whole culture of filters and stuff on on your digital photographs really took off. It was those weren't made up from nothing, right? All of those filters were things that happened in real life when you were doing alternative photography processes. Mm -hmm. People that have never done that necessarily, they don't realize that though that's what happens when there is a light leak and whether the light leak happened when it was when you were exposing the film or whether the light leak happened when you're exposing the paper. So there's all these real scientific reasons why all of these things that mimicked filters, like they, they're all like beautiful mistakes that would happen when you didn't get the photo to come out perfectly. And it's funny because like originally the goal was, and it was always like, those were things that went wrong. Right. All this stuff was stuff that was like, oh, no, I ruined it. It's broke. You know, I messed it up. I got a retry, blah, blah, blah. And then it turned into this thing, this nostalgic thing in the digital world of all these mistakes that used to be problems are now the thing that make us love it. I mean, it could be wrong, but it seems like there's less of it now. There's yeah. less of the filtering now. And whether it is, I don't want to say that it's that we're dropping some of the nostalgia of it necessarily or whether it was a trend that passed. I have no idea. Yeah. It is interesting to see. I agree. I think a lot of a lot of the things I'm seeing on Instagram seem really natural. And what's wild is I'm sure that a lot of those photos are still crazy photoshopped oh, yeah. to look supernatural. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and so how ironic is that? We have all these tools and that's almost it's being in in the red room again and and developing your photos to make them appear how you did not photograph them mm-hmm. to curate this this artwork and the process is art in and of itself to create this image that you're going to share with the world altering the way that we present ourselves in images is you know among our natural human traits we're almost out of time but one last question slash statement. If you were to give advice to designers and architects out there and their use of color moving forward here in Seattle, what would you, what would you say to them? 
just always be curious. Just try new things. If something really, really works and you believe in it, then fight for it. See if this works. See if orange works. See if this really cool shade of gray works. Just, I would say, whatever the norm is and the standard, just try and bump it up a level. And if that involves color or if it involves a different sort of reflective material or or a different way of organizing things, just bump it up. Well said. Thank you very much for sitting with us. Thank you. I had a great time. Our next night school event will be right around the corner, so keep a lookout on our social media for that. It will be held here at Borden Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter or the blog on BoredenVellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there all the time. And as always, please stop by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.